Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of Casual Criminalist, the mad trapper of Rat River, a cop killer manhunt, and a title that is a mouthful. Thank you, Kevin, who wrote this. This uh, this is a show where uh, I've never read this before. We're going to explore it together. If you're new here, welcome. Thank you. Um, and let's just jump in, shall we? My favourite part of being in the Boy Scouts was all the camping trips we got to go on. We'd go camping once a month, including during the winter. Oh my god, I hate camping during the winter. I hated camping during the winter as a kid. I hate. And then I was like, yeah, yeah no. I went camping a couple of times with my mates uh, in the winter. And the last time I went, there was a metre of snow. We were up on some mountain, there was a metre of snow, and it was f***ing cold. And I was so cold in the night. I was so cold in the night that I was just, you know, that plank exercise where you kind of uh, lie down and lift yourself up off the ground until you can't do it anymore. I was just doing that because I'd wake up, I'd be so cold that I'd do that and it would warm up my body. And then I'd go to sleep for 20 minutes and then I'd wake up 20 minutes later so cold and just repeat. And I just repeated that all night and it was miserable. And then I was like, I'm never going camping in winter again. I'm an adult man. I don't have to. And I never did. <laughs> I don't care how good your sleeping bag is, how good your tent is. There is nothing nice about camping when it's f***ing freezing. One January, we went to a mountain in New Hampshire that was also the home of a week-long summer camp that we attended, which meant that there were various facilities available instead of it just being a barren, desolate mountaintop. When we arrived at about midnight on Friday, we grabbed all of the cots in the cabins. It had been a long drive after a long day of school, and we were far too tired for anything else. The next day, though, me and my friend Matt decided that we'd sleep outside in an igloo we built. <laughs> Okay. It was minus 17 degrees Fahrenheit, or minus 27 in numbers Simon will understand. Minus 27 Celsius. That's bloody ridiculously cold. But the igloo was warm. We were sweating our asses off inside. Oh, holy <laughs> igloos totally work. <laughs> a cool experience as that was, it was only for a single night and there was a warm cabin nearby. It would have been a lot less fun to have to keep that up for two months in even colder temperatures, especially if we were running from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police who were trying to bring us in for murdering one of their colleagues. <laughs> holy <laughs> But this is exactly the situation one man found himself in, the man who became known as the Mad Trapper of Rad River. When we talk about serial killers from the US, they're often referred to as being the target of the largest manhunt in history to that point, with the task force for each subsequent killer outdoing the previous one. However, despite taking place way back in 1932, the Mad Trapper incident is still often referred to as the largest and longest manhunt in Canadian history. It's a hundred years later, there must be many more people! And it could all have been avoided for about five bucks. Okay, great hook, let's go! Meet Albert Johnson On July the 9th, 1931, a man floated down the Peel River, headed towards Fort McPherson in Canada's Northwest Territories. The man identified himself as Albert Johnson, and he began buying gear and trapping supplies. He was sparing no expense, and this awkward newcomer quickly caught the attention of the RCMP. <laughs> they caught the, he caught the attention of the police because he was buying some in their town? Okay. Not because he was doing anything wrong, of course. Fort McPherson was an extremely small community, and even today the population is less than a thousand. This area in the Northwest Territories was mostly home to First Nations people, so a white man unexpectedly floating into town on a log raft was enough to at least warrant a friendly chat with the police. Of course, this is Canada, and I actually mean a friendly chat, not what 1930s American police would refer to as a friendly chat. <laughs> or like 20, 2020s American police. I like, you know, that, that relationship. Like, in the UK, it's kind of like a policeman's the sort of person, I don't know, when I was a kid, you'd ask them for directions and shit. Or maybe this is like some rose-colored, super-privileged Simon idea of a policeman. And maybe it's not like that in the reality of things. But, yeah. 
Yeah. It seems that American police are more likely to just beat the <laughs> out of you. <laughs> but I guess, you know, the media does report on all of the, the, the bad stuff, I guess. It just seems that a lot in the last few years. American police being violent and Although the nearest police headquarters was in Eklevig, nearly 55 miles away, in the summer months they would have officers stationed at Fort McPherson just in case. Constable Edgar Millen was sent to go investigate this stranger and see what business he had in the area. Well, it was difficult to get much information out of him. I imagine this guy, I don't know why, in my mind he's got a British accent. Hello, hello, hello. What's going on here then? <laughs> Pretty much everyone that met Albert described him as being extremely quiet with a rather surly demeanor. The only person that he seemed to talk to at all was the owner of the local trading post, which was mostly out of necessity. Constable Millen had his little chat with Albert, and nothing seemed too out of the ordinary beyond his manner of arrival. Millen described him as being about 35 to 40 years old, 5 foot 9, and about 175 pounds. This is the same physical description given by everyone in Fort McPherson that met him, give or take an inch and about five pounds. What Millen left out of his initial reports, but he and others would later note, is that Albert had very broad shoulders, and that 175 pounds or so was pure muscle. Then he got, what is 170? Danny, <laughs> Danny, Kevin, Kevin, you gave me a translation for Fahrenheit to Celsius. What the f are pounds? <laughs> I know it's, it's roughly half, right? So he's a big, no, he's not that big. No, he's not that big. He's just, but he sounds very muscly. Then again, at the time, he had no reason to note what an impressive physical specimen Albert was. All he cared about was what this stranger was doing in the area. Albert said he planned to travel to the Upper Rat River to trap animals, and that answer was reasonable enough. Millen did warn him that if he was going to trap within the Northwest Territories, that he'd need to purchase a trapping permit, but Albert claimed he wasn't, so that was the end of it. And that was the first time that this entire ordeal could have been easily avoided. A couple of weeks later, he'd arrived in Fort McPherson. Albert departed for the Rat River near the border of the Yukon Territory. He built a log cabin near the river and prepared to make his way as a trapper. I'm sure he would have been great at it too. I can't help but imagine that the sort of person who could build a house with their bare f***ing hands would have no problem hunting for rabbits and squirrels. But of course, there had to be a problem. Of course there did. This is an episode of The Casual Criminalist. He's gonna do crimes. As it turns out, sometimes you really can judge a book by its cover. Albert had been described by people as looking a bit of a, like a bit of a surly douchebag. And he was a surly douchebag. When December rolled around, the First Nations peoples reported to the RCMP that a strange white man was interfering with their trap lines. He had been setting off their traps and hanging them in the trees, and when they went to his cabin to confront him about it, the man pulled a gun on them. The reason Albert needed a permit in order to trap in the Northwest Territories was that the land by the Rat River was strictly the trapping territory of the First Nations people. But he didn't care about any of that. As far as he was concerned, this was his land now, and he told the indigenous people to leave the country because he was taking over. <laughs> what you and what army, mate? I should mention at this point that he was reported as having a Scandinavian accent, since you're probably just assuming now that he's British. Oh, I was assuming he was Canadian, because it's in Canada! <laughs> It was decided that a couple of men would be sent up to pay Albert a visit for a friend for another friendly chat, but it was this chat's gonna be less friendly. He pointed guns at people, they're gonna be like, Alright, mate, you gotta come down the station. But it was December, which meant that the RCMP were all back at Eklavik instead of in Bork McPherson. It was going to be an 80 mile or so trek to Albert's cabin, which was a giant pain in the ass. Oh my god, 80 miles? By foot? <laughs> So Constable Millen decided that he'd wait until December the 26th, at which point he would send Constable Alfred King along with a First Nations guide who knew exactly where the cabin was. When King arrived at the cabin with his guide, I get the feeling that King's going to be killed, because we know he kills one of the RCMP, right? And this dude just going up there alone with the native guide, 
He's he's going to be murdered. He knew that Albert was home because there was smoke coming from the chimney. King tried knocking on the door and calling out, but Albert opted for the la 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 la, I can't hear you defense, completely ignoring the constable. King tried to looking through the window, but Albert covered the opening with a sack to block the view. Are you in there, Albert? I saw you put that sack up, Albert. I know you're in there. Luckily, King didn't have the authority to enter the premises yet, so they returned to Aiklevik to get a warrant and some backup. Dude. <laughs> You make it sound, Kevin, like, yeah, yeah, he just went back. Oh, no, wait, this is closer, right? What was the 80-mile trek from? That was from Fort McPherson. Okay, so it's not that bad. <laughs> he turned around and he made the 80-mile trek back. <laughs> You'd think he'd got a warrant beforehand. No, but it was closer. It was closer. However, there was something a bit unfortunate about the cabin that King had noticed. I already mentioned that all of the events that will follow could have been avoided if Albert had just brought a bought a goddamn trapping permit, but he had made one of the mistake as well. I don't know whether or not there are any now, but back in the day, there weren't any markers to indicate the boundaries between the territories. As it turns out, Albert had built his log cabin just 200 yards away from the Yukon Territory border. There aren't bar markers like this anywhere rather it's not like you're traveling along even like driving europe you cross into another country i mean yeah there's a marking usually i don't know if that's the case even if you're on some tiny back road yeah usually there's a marking but that's crossing into another country like if you cross into another county or like another region on a back road there's not going to be a sign and if you're in the middle of the woods there's definitely not going to be signs there who's putting those signs up if you cross into another country in the middle of the woods there's not going to be a sign saying like welcome to the next country right although your google person will be like you crossed the border i recently took a long road trip and you'd just be driving along you'd be like it'll be like you crossed the border and it's like god the european union's great you're just you're just driving along and it's like you're in another country now no one to stop no no stopping no nothing like that and then i crossed the border into serbia easy on the way in and then on the way back it was like an hour two hours just waiting in this queue while they're searching through everyone's cars and it's all for god's sake <laughs> so long if his cabin had just been slightly further away he would have been inside the yukon where no permit was required for trapping and there would have been no mad trapper at least there might not have been albert was still a so I'm not going to rule out the possibility that he might have either killed or gotten himself killed by the First Nations people. Trapping without a permit may have been legal in the Yukon, but while mur but murder, unsurprisingly, was not, so he still may have died in infamy. Anyway, five days later, King returned to the cabin with Special Constable Joe Bernard and two other men to execute the search warrant. They tried to speak with Albert, but he ignored them again. King knocked on the door twice, announcing who he was and that they had a warrant to search the premises, but before King could attempt to open it, Albert began firing his rifle blindly through the closed door. The first shot hit King in the chest, knocking him to the ground. Uh-oh. King was... I was like, wow, King managed to survive. Getting shot in the chest in the 1920s, is the, that's a bad time. I mean, getting shot in the twist, chest any time is a bad time. But in the 1920s, you're kind of f***ed, aren't you? As King crawled towards Bernard for help, the other officers returned fire. They saw Albert fleeing into the woods, though they opted not to give chase. It was 80 miles back to the hospital in Eiklevik, so if they had any hope of King surviving, they were going to need to load him onto the dog sled and get moving immediately. Oh, okay, so they had a dog sled, so it's not that bad. I mean, I thought they were walking like 80 miles through the forest in the winter. I mean, that. Fortunately for King, the bullet had pierced his lower chest while managing to avoid any vital organs. He would go on to make a full recovery, though there was still one fatality from this journey. They had traveled all the way to Albert's cabin and back in the same day with basically no break, and one of the sled dogs was dead on the line by the time they made it back to Aiklevik. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> okay, yeah, of course it's sad that one of the sled dogs died, but at least King survived. 
bloody miracle, basically. By now, things were heating up, and they realized that they were dealing with an extremely dangerous and possibly unhinged individual. After all, why the hell would he have opened fire on police over a trapping violation? If they had determined that he was the one responsible for screwing with the First Nations trap lines, all they were going to do was issue him the standard fine that he could easily afford. I mean, in the brief time he spent in Fort McPherson that summer, it dropped about $1,400 in 1930s Great Depression money. Holy shit, what sort of equipment do you need for trapping? That's got to be like 30 grand or something today. Just absolutely wildly guessing. But that's an extremely large amount of money. For the next attempt, which would occur on January the 9th, 1932, RCMP Inspector Alexander Reams decided that he was going to personally lead a posse of officers to the cabin to take the dangerous fugitive into custody. He wanted to be sure they were prepared, so there were nine total officers, including Millen and Bernard from before, as well as Charlie Ratt, their First Nations guide. They'd also decided to bring along about 20 pounds of dynamite so they could blow the out of Albert's cabin and force him into the open. 20 pounds. I'll try to wait. It's like 10 kilograms. That's a f- load of dynamite, boys. <laughs> You're gonna f- murder him. But things just blow the f- out of his cabin. But things didn't go according to plan. Albert's cabin was originally a fairly shoddy construction, but he had reinforced it since his last encounter with the police. When the police arrived and Inspector Eames ordered Albert to surrender, he declined by opening fire with his rifle. The dynamite was thrown onto his roof, though it's unclear whether or not this had any effect. While the story generally goes that the police then blew up Albert's cabin, the RCMP's official report says that the dynamite barely had any effect and they just destroyed his cabin by hand later so that he wouldn't return. 20 pounds of dynamite had no effect on a cabin <laughs> bro i the only thing i know about dynamite is lost that tv show lost and they have those little sticks of dynamite they probably weigh what three four hundred grams by the looks of things and they are big explosions so you're telling me that 20 times 20 of those sticks of dynamite doesn't destroy this guy's cabin i feel like this it would destroy this section of the woods I know it sounds like a lot, but 20 pounds of dynamite isn't that much. It's the equivalent of an explosive vest. It can cause a lot of damage in the right place, but if it's haphazardly thrown onto a roof, it probably won't yield the desired results. Lost lied to me. Dynamite looked really dangerous. What it did result in was a 15-hour shootout between Albert and the police. Armed with a 30-30 rifle, a revolver, and a sawn-off shotgun, he was able to fend off the nine RCMP officers by himself thanks to a very strange design decision with his cabin. Rather than just building his log cabin on the ground as it would think made sense, Albert had dug down about three feet and built his cabin around the hole. This dugout helped protect him from oncoming fire, allowing him to hold his own for the extended firefight. Why well, isn't it smart to build like in super cold climates if you build down into the grounds doesn't that act as insulation for your cabin as the time went on the rcmp realized they were going to need to retreat it was entirely too cold and they had plans on quickly being in and out with albert in custody <laughs> it's like they arrive with loads of dynamite nine dudes and they can't take this one guy in Running low on food for themselves as well as their dogs, the only chance was to go back for supplies. Millen and another officer would return to the cabin five days later, and this is allegedly when they would have destroyed the cabin. However, there was no trace of Albert. He had been given five days to make a run for it, and his tracks were completely covered up by a recent snowfall. Yeah, it'd have to be insane to stay there. It's like the police show up with nine dudes with guns and dynamite, and he's like, nah, nah, that's cool. And then they have a huge firefight, and by some miracle, they leave. You'd have to be insane to stay. <laughs> News of the shootout broke, and the media dubbed Albert the Mad Trapper of Rat River. And at this point, the public were almost entirely on his side. It probably didn't help that the police who were chasing him, even King who he had shot, all seemed to show a great deal of respect for the man. Really? He shot the dude? Why do they respect him? He just seems like a madman. 
Following Albert receiving the Mad Trapper moniker, Inspector Eames said that he was not a demented trapper, but a shrewd and resolute man, a tough and desperate character. The officers spoke about what an accomplished woodsman and traveler he was, and what a tough individual he had to be to survive on his own in the Arctic wilderness. Even years later, after the eventual murder, the tone of everybody involved remain, remained unchanged in the interviews. The only difference was that instead of just calling him a skilled woodsman and traveler, they would add in what an excellent shot he was. I don't think I could ever say such nice things about a person that killed my friend and co-worker, but then again, I'm not a Canadian. <laughs> why are they why do they have such reverence for this dude? Yeah, he's he's he shot our mate, but he is really good at whittling. <laughs> he can whittle that wood like nobody's business. On January the 14th, another posse was formed to meet Millen and uh, the other officer at the cabin, again containing nine members of the RCMP as well as 11 First Nations trackers. As I said, the fresh snowfall had eliminated Albert's tracks, but they had a good idea that he was headed toward the Richardson Mountains. They assumed that he would travel through the Yukon over the mountains and head towards Alaska, where he could easily disappear from them forever. There was no communications network in Alaska or the Yukon, so if Albert could cross the border, he'd be home free. Canada and the United States didn't have a formal extradition treaty until 1971 wow that seems very recent <laughs> so like back in the day in the in movies in the 60s it wasn't people fleeing to mexico it was people fleeing to canada wait when was the vietnam war because people did go to canada didn't they if they wanted to avoid the draft though the first fugitive to be extracted from the u.s to canada was back in 1886 so that absolutely would have been on the table the only problem was that with no radio or telegraph communication the alaskan authorities wouldn't have been waiting to apprehend albert at the border he could have entered the united states leaving the rcmp's jurisdiction and made his way to a coastal town to board a boat to god knows where before the alaskan police knew what was going on but a more pressing issue than the lack of communications networks in the area was the fact that there was about a hundred square miles between the destroyed cabin and the alaskan border and finding Albert without any tracks to follow was no simple task. There's like 20 of them. How the f*** are you going to find this guy? That's a huge area. They embarked on their journey, but after a week, supplies were running low. Most of the posse had to return to Aiklovic to get more supplies, with Inspector Eames leaving behind Millen and three other constables to continue the manhunt. It was going to be a long time before the remainder of the posse would return with supplies, but there would be a major break in the search for Albert. Before then, a First Nations hunter heard a gunshot coming from the Bear River. He believed that this must have been Albert hunting small game to eat, so he led Millen and the remaining officers to the area. On January the 30th, the four officers finally caught up with Albert at a small campsite he had constructed for himself. He had constructed what Constable Riddle described as a snow fort, using a large spruce tree as part of his shelter. However, he had constructed his camp with its back to a nearby vertical cliff. This would make it harder for the RCMB to sneak up on him, but now that they had found him, it meant he was cornered. But Albert was a desperate individual. It seemed insane to let a trapping dispute get this far out of hand, but it was clear Albert had decided that he was not going to be taken alive. <laughs> you never take me alive! It's like, Albert, just get the bloody permit! Just get the permit, Albert! We could have avoided all of this! You spent $30,000 on... I don't even know. <laughs> Why didn't you buy a permit, Albert? You cheapskate bastard. Friend murderer. <laughs> Millen called out for him to surrender, but instead the mad trapper fired a single shot from his rifle. The bullet pierced Millen's heart, killing him instantly, and the other three officers retreated. Very <laughs> like, yeah, but he can whittle a fine bit of wood. <laughs> I love him. Riddle would explain that it had been dark at the time, and they were out in the open while Albert had cover. He also said that they were all just regular policemen, none of them was a special constable, so it simply wasn't safe to continue the fight at that time. Yeah. 
they just shot your mate in the, he just shot your mate in the heart and be like i'm gonna f- out of here we gotta get like canadian 1920s swat in here that's not unreasonable <laughs> but at the same time it was always going to be dark it was the dead of winter in northern canada so they were working without three hours of daylight each day that sounds so depressing i don't think i could live at these northern altitudes like It'd be annoying that it's bright all the time in the summer. Like, even now, it's like the height of... It's almost the longest day. So it's like, it's mid-June, so it's the longest day at the end of June. And it's already like 9.30 at night and it's super light outside. And it's kind of annoying. <laughs> like, I don't like it getting dark at 4, but I also don't like it being light at 9.30 at night. And if I, if you lived in, like, northern Finland, Sweden, like one of these countries, <laughs> I mean, it's like 11 o'clock at night, it's still light. I'm like, what the f***? And then in winter, you'll be like, oh, yeah, after lunch, getting dark, <laughs> which would be so depressing. Regardless, they retreated four or five miles to a nearby First Peoples camp, then Riddle traveled to Eklavik to get it to inform Inspector Eames of Millen's death. They had already been taking Albert seriously, but with one of their own having been killed in cold blood, Eames was determined to bring Albert in, no matter what. Is it really cold blood? Isn't cold blood where you just, like, randomly kill someone? That these people were hunting him and he was like look i got guns don't come after me and they came after him and he shot them it sounds like not hot blood but i mean it's obviously not fair because they're trying to do their job and get this guy to buy a permit <laughs> but i think it's cold blood is it the ballad of the mad trapper Bringing in Albert was already proving to be no easy task. The remaining RCMP officers, as well as trackers kept watch, circled around his camp. They waited to see him leave so that they could stay on his trail, but after a few days they finally realized that he had slipped out without them noticing. Had he just crept out under the cover of darkness? Well, no, that would be too easy. Instead, he had scaled down the near-vertical cliff behind his camp to escape. The mad trapper proved exceedingly difficult to track. They were all traversing snow that was two to three feet deep, and Albert was at a severe disadvantage. Despite dropping mad coin on supplies in Fort McPherson, it apparently had never occurred to him to buy a pair of snowshoes. Instead, he had constructed his own back when he was still in the cabin. They were described as being crude, but still a pretty good job for an amateur that really didn't know what he was doing. He sure can whittle that word. (laughs) The main disadvantage was that they were much heavier than normal snowshoes, leaving him needlessly encumbered. Despite this, he was quite adept at hiding his tracks. He'd create a path, then double back before heading in a different direction to create false leads. He would also follow carabo tracks that disguised his own tracks remarkably well. What is a carabo? Is that some sort of deer or some like that? Don't highlight it. I just want to look at it. Define. Look up. Carabo. A large North American reindeer. Okay, there we go. Reindeer. One of the biggest questions was how the hell did he manage to stay alive this entire time? By the time Albert killed Millen, he had already been on the run for a month with virtually no supplies. Well, isn't he excellent? Like, he's there's water, there's food, there's shelter that he's made. He's got guns. I mean, look, I've seen that TV show, Alive, Alive, Alone. The one where they're in the wilderness and they have to survive for ages with just basically nothing just left out there <laughs> with some cameras. It's like, go on then. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's unreasonable if he's like an outdoorsman. The average temperature in the area that winter was about 40 degrees below, and between the cold and the intense physical exertion, it's estimated that it had been burning about 10,000 calories per day. That caloric demand is absolutely staggering, twice that of your average professional athlete, and pretty much only matched by Olympic swimmers and people in serious contention for the title of World's Strongest Man. That is an extraordinary amount. I remember I did a... Have I told this story before? I did that cycling trip where you cycle the length of the UK. And we did it, I did it with a mate of mine. We did it like nine days or something. We were cycling like well over 100 miles a day. 
and the amount of food that we ate was insane. We'd just be cycling for like 12 hours a day or something mad. But we'd just be constantly eating. It'd be just going into the supermarket and just going absolutely nuts. Just buy, and then just having constant bags of sweets, just eating them on these bikes as we'd just be riding and riding and riding and just smashing like gummy bears constantly. Couldn't believe how much food you'd eat and then just still be hungry. Eventually, Albert would have to rely entirely on whatever squirrels and rabbits he could hunt, cooking them on small, concealed fires, if at all, so as to avoid detection. But before he got that far, he actually had an ingenious plan. Albert had created several secret caches of game meat that he'd hidden throughout the wilderness miles from his cabin. This gave him a steady supply of food, at least in the beginning. I'll let you decide whether he was a criminal genius or just a paranoid nutjob, but in hindsight, he certainly seems to have been prepared for such a pursuit. I think he's just a... Like, he's not a criminal genius. I don't think he expected this to happen. He's just like paranoid he's like hiding the food <laughs> but the problem is like you gotta all that food's great but then spring rolls around you're like oh man i had so much meat out in the forest and now it's all spoiled <laughs> Albert was pulling out all the stops to avoid capture, but back in Aiklovic, Inspector Eames was going to do the same. This whole routine of briefly searching for Albert before running back for supplies was horribly inefficient, so something needed to be done. Eames decided that for the first time in Canadian history, the RCMP was going to enlist air support for a fugitive manhunt. Albert was making his way toward Alaska, but with the death of Millen, there was no way that Eames was going to let him escape. Eames was going to do everything in his power to bring the mad trapper in, and there was only one pilot who was suitable for the task. World War I Canadian flying ace Wilfred Wop May, the man responsible for the death of Manfred von Richthofen. But you may know Manfred better as the ace of aces, the most feared fighter pilot of World War I, or more simply, as the Red Baron. Of course, May was only responsible for the Red Baron's death in a manner of speaking, although he went on to become Canadian's Canadians. Canada's leading ace pilot. His encounter with the Red Baron was only his second time in aerial combat. He had been instructed to circle overhead and simply keep lookout rather than engage in the fighting. But May saw an opportunity to strike at the German plane, and he had to take it. His target wasn't the Red Baron, of course. That would have been suicide. Instead, his target was an equally inexperienced German pilot flying in the same lookout pattern that he was. May immediately gave chase and opened fire on the German rookie, completely unaware that it had just targeted the Red Baron's little cousin. Before he knew it, another plane was in hot pursuit firing upon him. May later said that if he had realized he was actually chasing him, it would have likely passed out. May began spinning his plane and dodging. <laughs> we suddenly into the history of the Red Baron, Kevin. Okay, feels like I'm like, now we're in a... Oh, what channel would I cover this on? I say mega projects. No, maybe side pro. Oh, who knows? I have many other channels, just if you didn't know. Check them out on YouTube if you want to. Why not? May began spinning his plane and dodging, flying around frantically to the best of his limited abilities. Just like your annoying friend who knows only how to play Tekken by mashing the controller wildly, May was basically operating on the theory, if even I don't know what the hell I'm about to do, there's no way my opponent is going to figure it out. This strategy worked, and May was able to keep the Red Baron distracted with his erratic, flailing long enough for somebody else to shoot him down. It's a wild story, but that was early in May's flying career. By this point, he was a legitimate ace pilot, famous for being able to land on or take off from just about anything. That was going to be extremely important, since it's not like there were a lot of runways for him to land on out in the frozen wasteland. Not only was May going to help provide a set of eyes in the sky, he would also be able to fly back and forth to town to keep the posse supplied with food so that they could remain in pursuit of Albert. It was February the 5th when the RCMP enlisted the help of the famed pilot, though by this point, Albert had made his way to the Richardson Mountains. Albert was getting ever closer to Alaska and freedom, but the RCMP had him cornered again. There were only two passes through the mountain range, and the police had men stationed both passes to block his path. It seemed like the hunt was finally going to come to an end, and the use of the plane was proving invaluable. 
The police had wasted a lot of time following the fake trails of tracks that Albert had left, leading them to dead ends and forcing them to double back and try again. From the air, May and the officer on board his plane were able to easily eliminate any of the fake trails and a radio back to land to tell them which way to go. Unfortunately, this wouldn't work as they approached the mountain range. From the plane, they were trying to identify human footprints in the snow, which meant they needed a clear view of the ground. According to the officer that rode with May during reconnaissance, they needed to keep an altitude of about 3,000 feet. From that height, the officer claimed that he could see a mouse running along in the snow, but such a low altitude wasn't possible near the mountain range. Not only would they need to fly much higher than that if they wanted to avoid dying in a fiery crash, which is always a blast, the rocky terrain would have made tracks nearly impossible to spot compared to the flat land. The search for Albert continued for four days. But they never caught a glimpse of him. It turned out that the airplane was a little bit of a double-edged sword. Sure, it was a lot easier to follow his tracks, and they were doing a better job keeping up, but he could also hear the plane coming. Albert would always have more than enough time to hide, making pinpointing his location nearly impossible. He had already proven adept at hiding his tracks, so the disappearance of a trail didn't necessarily mean that Albert was hiding mere feet from that location, rather than having traveled another mile without detection. A blizzard hit the area on February the 9th, grounding the plane. May and the RCMP spent three days waiting either for the weather to break or for Albert to approach one of the mountain passes, when they suddenly received shocking news. The First Nations people, particularly the Inuvialut and the Gwinnitch, had been taking an increasingly active role in the manhunt, as they were much more accustomed to traversing the harsh terrain than the officers of the RCMP were. On February the 12th, word came in to the posse from trackers that they'd found Albert's trail on the other side of the mountain. Ah. <laughs> He's already he's on his way. Needless to say, they were shocked. With no supplies, this fugitive had scaled a 7,000-foot icy peak in temperatures averaging minus 40 degrees at sea level, so God, know how, God knows how cold it was up on the mountain. As far as the officers knew, nobody had ever scaled that peak before, let alone somebody who hadn't come prepared. Even though Albert hadn't been in the area before, he seemed to understand the lay of the lands. The ravines in the area all traveled in the same direction, a topological feature that would make it easy for him to keep his bearings and head towards Alaska. This guy seems... Ex he's just like... I'm not surprised that he manages all this stuff, because it seems like he was made to be outside in the cold doing This is what he was... This is his dream. He's probably having a great time. Once it was discovered that he'd made his way across the mountain pass, the RCMP decided to take the shortest path towards Alaska to regroup. The five dog sled teams had already gone ahead, with May taking the other officers by plane. They all met at a remote trading post known as the Pier House, confident that they were once again ahead of Albert. The Pier House was on the Bell River, and on February the 14th of May, they spotted Albert's tracks at the point where the Bell River and the Eagle River met. He had again been using caribou tracks to hide his trail, but May managed to see a set of tracks break off toward the river junction. Although Fogg grounded the plane for two days after that, they knew Albert was going to be traveling up the Eagle River rather than the Bell to a avoid detection. He would have been able to see signs of civilization up the Bell River, even if it was an extremely small community, so it was best to avoid any people that stood between him and Alaska. The Final Confrontation On February the 17th, the RCMP's posse set out down the Eagle River in search of Albert. They decided to give the dog teams a two-hour head start before sending May in his plane so that the sound of the plane's engine would not spook the fugitive. Sergeant Earl Hersey was able to find Albert's tracks, which were about 24 hours old based on the amount of snow that had covered them. Based on that, they couldn't have imagined that Albert was only a quarter of a mile away, having made camp on the banks of the Eagle River. Hersey had originally been flown in to Pier House by May, so he was traveling on foot in his snowshoes rather than one of the dog sleds. 
I'm unclear if this was a rank thing or if being on foot was somehow faster than using one of the sleds, though that doesn't make sense. But however it happened, it was Hersey that was leading the charge on his own while the five, five sled teams were behind him. As he reached a bend in the river, Hersey saw Albert coming into view. He immediately grabbed his rifle, then dropped down into a firing position with his left elbow on his left knee. Hersey had been an army marksman in the war, and at only 270 yards, he was able to place a bullet anywhere that he wanted. Sure, how's he going to get out of this one? He hasn't seen him, right? Of course, he wasn't actually trying to kill Albert. He just wanted to wound him badly enough that the fight would be over, but that Albert would survive and be brought into custody. Isn't shooting someone in the 1920s, like, from that sort of distance and in the wilderness, surely he's going to die? <laughs> The bank of the Eagle River was about 20 or 30 feet high, and Albert wasn't prepared to give up his position. As he started climbing the bank, still wearing the pack with all of his worldly possessions in it, Hersey fired directly at the pack. He could hear the clang of the bullets striking tin pots and the like, and the impact sent Albert tumbling back down to the bank. He started up the bank again, and again, Hersey fired directly into his pack. This happened three or four times in total before Albert no longer found it amusing. <laughs> It's like, oh, yeah, very funny, guys. Ha ha ha. Yeah, now my tin pots are all dented. Very funny. <laughs> In an interview, Hersey explained what he was thinking at that point. He described what should be required for Albert to take a proper shot, describing the optimal stance and how much of his body would need to be visible in order for him to take aim. But none of what expected was what happened. The next time Albert started climbing the riverbank, he reached back, grabbed his rifle, and the instant the rifle hit his shoulder, Albert pulled the trigger, firing a single bullet directly through Hersey's knee, elbow, and into the center of his chest. Holy sh! Is that just a just like boom? Is that just a lucky shot? I mean, I get the feeling it's like nah, it wasn't. <laughs> he just ruined that guy's body. Hersey fell on his back paralyzed from the waist down as he saw albert taking aim out of the options hersey began flinging snow around him to both obscure the view and to dig himself into the multiple feet of snow to conceal his to conceal his location it worked and albert's next shot missed but by this point the rest of the dog sleds arrived with may flying overhead completely surrounding albert realizing he was outnumbered albert tried to retreat across the river to put enough distance between himself and the rest of the rcmp officers so that they couldn't hit him this wasn't going to be possible, however. The snow on top of the riverbank was much harder and more densely packed than the snow Albert was trying to cross in his crude, homemade snowshoes, so there was no way he could move as fast as the police. Inspector Eames called out for Albert to surrender or else they'd open fire, but he had no interest in surrendering. Instead, he dug himself into the snow and began opening fire on the RCMP. Albert was hit by one of the bullets from the police, then another and another. It just kept on going like that, with the mad trapper futilely returning fire, but failing to hit his mark. At the end of the ordeal, one of the officers described Albert's body as being well shot up. The fugitive had continued to return fire despite his wounds until the 17th bullet hit him in the spine, killing him instantly. After everything it had taken to track and finally kill the mad trapper, it's no wonder that the others involved seemed to speak about him with such respect and admiration for his abilities and strength. He murdered and crippled your friends. <laughs> yeah, but he could whittle a fine piece of wood. <laughs> If only he had wounded the two officers instead of killing, instead of killing Mel Millen, I suspect at least some members of the posse would have secretly hoped that he was able to escape Alaska successfully. He paralyzed a dude! What the f***? <laughs> no, they wouldn't! Hersey was loaded into the plane with a couple of other officers and May flew them back to Aiklovic. He was able to make a full recovery, with whatever paralysis he experienced after being shot only being temporary. Jesus, lucky guy. With Albert now dead. All that was left was to inspect the body and figure out who the hell he really was. The RCMP had engaged in three firefights with Albert, one of them lasting for 15 hours. But in all that time, despite them calling for his surrender, they never once heard him speak a word. Not even the stereotypical, You never date me alive, copper! 
The only police officer that had ever heard Albert's voice was the one he had killed. They knew almost nothing about him from the 10 days he'd spent in town. So who was this man that had managed to evade capture for 53 days across 150 miles of Arctic wasteland, falling only about 60 miles short of the Alaskan border? The Identity of Albert Johnson When Albert first floated, into Fort McPherson on his raft, it became apparent rather quickly that he was pretty well off. He dropped a lot more money in 10 days than the average traveler would have been expected to have even before the Great Depression hit. But it turns out that the $1,400 that he spent in town wasn't even the half of it. While he had no form of identification, around Albert's neck was a magic baking powder can. For the benefit of our listeners who can't see the capitalization in that sentence, magic is a Canadian brand of baking powder, not an editorial comment regarding the quality of the baking powder can. <laughs> It's like it's magical. How did he have so much money? He just he had this magical baking powder can, and he'd just rub it and make a wish. Inside the can was two thousand four hundred and ten Canadian dollars, which is roughly thirty-five grand in today's American money. There was also ten dollars in American currency, which is another two hundred dollars today. I basically guessed that it was twenty times, and it turns out it is. <laughs> Big brain or what? In addition to the cash, Alba was carrying with him five raw pearls valued at a couple of hundred dollars each. He also had some amount of gold on him, though I think this is the subject of a lot of misreporting. The majority of accounts say that he had gold fillings in his teeth. It's possible this is true, but I believe this account is essentially the result of a decades-long game of telephone where the details have been misinterpreted over time. I can't say for certain whether or not Albert's teeth had gold filings, gold fillings, sorry, but I can tell you for certain that the officer who searched his body found a bottle of gold teeth in Albert's possession. That's creepy. <laughs> More specifically, he had a bowl of gold teeth that did not come out of his own mouth. Yep, that's what I assumed, and it's creepy. Even more specifically, he had a collection of teeth that originally belonged to at least five different people. <laughs> Bro, are you a serial killer, Albert? This raised a lot of questions about the man's true identity, with some of the officers involved believing Albert may have been from a Chicago gang before coming to Canada. As one of them stated, he could just fill a door with lead with two revolvers, just having them singing all around. The average trapper is just not able to handle automatic revolvers in that way. He was someone other than the usual trapper that we get in that country. Among the other possessions on his body were a lot of the usual things for a trapper like a knife, compass, fishhooks, dead squirrel, dead bird, and a razor. But he also had a large quantity of pills with him as well. These are often cited as either being kidney pills or Beecham's pills, which are a mild laxative that was originally marketed in the 1800s as a cure-all medicine. While I can't find definitive evidence one way or the other, I'll wager it was likely the Beecham's pills and that some sources changed it to kidney pills to fit a narrative that we'll get to in a minute. Kidney pills? What are kidney pills? like for helping with your kidneys? From everything the RCMP could determine based on Albert's belongings and behavior, he was likely a criminal that had moved to the Northwest Territories to evade capture, quite likely for murder. When the police came knocking with a warrant about the trapping dispute, he believed that they were actually there to come take him in for more serious crimes, which is why he fought back to the extent that he did, rather than just paying the small fine. But a close examination of the body showed a couple of key characteristics that would theoretically be helpful in establishing Albert's true identity. The first is that he was described as having a crooked spine, which would later be identified as scoliosis. More interestingly, one of his feet was noticeably longer than the other. Perhaps this was the real reason he built his own snowshoes rather than just purchasing some, though admittedly I don't know enough about snowshoes to know if different foot sizes would even matter. Me neither. Especially like 1920s snowshoes. Of course, I imagine snowshoes today, they're kind of like adjustable, right? Like, um, you know, you'd have like a thing and then like a, you know, a screwing thing and then it'd be like and it'll come down to fit over your shoe like obviously you've got to get them at roughly the right size but then they'll just kind of clamp down that's how i imagine a snowshoe would be today rather than like something specific like a separate entirely separate shoe 
this is not interesting, so let's just move on. Of course, before conducting a hunt for men with different sized feet or something of that nature, the first order of business was to search for a paper trail. Unsurprisingly, this went nowhere. There was no record of Albert Johnson having ever existed. Despite having so little to go on, they quickly identified a prime suspect. A man with a similar description to Albert, including the Scandinavian accent, had appeared out of nowhere in Dees Lake, British Columbia, a few years earlier. That man's name was Alfred Nelson, and his story was remarkably similar. He appeared out of nowhere in 1927 to work as a trapper and became fascinated with the local legends of lost gold mines and such. Then in 1931, shortly before Albert Johnson appeared, Alfred vanished entirely. One of his final purchases before disappearing was six bottles of kidney pills, hence the pills found on Albert but often being referred to as kidney pills. Maybe that's what Beecham's pills were referred to back in that time, but I can find no evidence to that effect. It's even speculated that when Albert arrived at Fort McPherson, he hadn't intended to change his name. The first people to encounter him were Edward and William Snowshoes, a pair of Gwitchen trappers. Some people believed that he gave them the name Alfred Nelson, but they misreported it to the town as Albert Johnson, and he just kind of rolled with it. It's not an unbelievable story, and Alfred Nelson is honestly the most likely candidate for Albert's true identity. I'd argue that Albert but was almost certainly Alfred, and he may have even changed his name on a whim because someone misheard him. The only problem with this theory is then we have a new question to answer. Well, who the hell was Alfred Nelson? He was another man that appeared out of thin air and vanished just as quickly, and there is no evidence that a person by that name had ever existed. So, even if they are the same person, well, we're back to square one. A number of theories have been put forth over the years using circumstantial evidence to link Albert to other people. Theories range from Albert being an escaped inmate of Folsom Prison in California to a Norwegian World War I draft dodger, but we don't know details because all of these theories regarding specific individuals were conclusively ruled out over 15 years ago. Oh, okay. I was kind of just expecting this to peter into, yeah, we don't know who he is, and that's that. But no, we got an answer, because in 2007, the Discovery Channel paid for a crew to exhume Albert's body to perform DNA testing for a documentary. Because I guess you can do that. <laughs> okay. Hey, can we dig him up? Why? What's the reason? Well, Discovery Channel, we're making a documentary. Yes, you can. Let me know in the comments whose body you want Simon to pay to exhume, and I promise to document the entire thing. My vote is to dig up the tomb of the unknown soldier. Holy sh and use DNA to find out he's actually buried there. Kevin, no! Anyway, the DNA ruled out all the previous suspects, except, of course, Alfred Nelson, since he proved to be no more of a real person than Albert Johnson. It did, however, confirm that Albert was in his 30s, and isotopic analysis of his teeth revealed that he grew up with a diet heavy in corn, indicating that he was likely either Scandinavian or from the Midwest United States. <laughs> Okay, those places seem really different and far apart, but I guess they ate the same thing. In 2017, once ancestry sites had become much more popular and DNA technology had advanced further, it was decided to give a familial DNA investigation a go. Albert was successfully traced back to his Swedish ancestors Gustav Magnusson, born 1776, and Brita daughter, born 1781. You've probably never heard of either of those names before because, well, nobody has. <laughs> or if Gustav Magnusson sounds familiar to you, you're likely confusing Albert's and ancestor with Major General Gustav Magnusson of the Finnish Air Force. He famously shot down five and a half aircraft as a World War II fighter pilot. <laughs> no, Kevin, I wasn't doing that. I've never heard of that dude. While those two ancestors of Albert have been identified, he... The search is still ongoing. His family history is still being traced, and DNA samples from potential living relatives are being sought after to try and identify him once and for all. Okay. <laughs> That's disappointing, Kevin. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, we're going to find who he is. And he, okay, that's it. We don't know. <laughs> like, what did they expect from the DNA? To, like, run it against the DNA database of people alive at the time? There was no such thing. <laughs> Wrap up.
This was an absolutely wild story that has a bit of everything. It has murder, a still unsolved mystery, a celebrity cameo, even if what May's name isn't as famous as it was 60 years ago, and a fugitive whose nickname makes him sound like a Spider-Man villain. Best of all, this entire ordeal could have been easily avoided by buying a trapping permit. The Mad Trapper of Rat River may not be well known anymore to the extent that I even put Cop Killer in the title in the hopes that people would click on this. But Albert Johnson was once the stuff of legends. He was a major cultural influence to the point that one of the officers who chased him said that there were about a thousand songs written about the man. Oh my god. I can't find the exact number as many of these were unpublished folk songs, but the story definitely inspired at least a dozen songs and multiple highly fictionalized movies. The common thread in the movies is that Albert was always the hero of the story, as popular opinion never really turned against the Mad Trapper. Sure, he was being an a**hole to First Nation trappers, killing a police officer and wounding two others, and had possibly murdered other people and stolen their teeth, but he was just so damn impressive. <laughs> you can sure can whittle that wood! The last time I took you all to Canada was for Paul Bernardo and Carla Holmorka. Oh my god, that was so brutal. <laughs> An episode so brutal, it was. The many people commented they weren't able to even finish it. If you enjoyed this light affair as a change of pace, then I hope for your sake this episode doesn't see a dip in viewership. Otherwise, I'm going to have to go back to traumatizing you all. I declined an episode the other day, so I was like, can we do this? It's lighthearted. I'm like, no, because people view the blood and guts ones more. And I'm like, look, we're not going to go into the whole true crime blood fest. But yeah, no one wants robberies. <laughs> We'll still do, the, do them occasionally because I need a little mental health break. Anyway, thank you for being here. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe. If you're listening as a podcast, leave a review and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.